Welcome to the Sonic Collective. We've enjoyed and discussed 70 albums since 2014. During that time, we've covered quite a bit of territory. From our first pick, Fella Cootie Zombie, to Van Halen 1, Frank Sinatra Live at the Sands, and even around a movie soundtracks. But there's been one common thread, regardless of genre, time period, or concept that's run through each selection. The search for a great album. The entire package, a group of songs that work together to create more than just a few good singles, rather an experience and journey for the listener. So what makes a great album? In Bangkok, Thailand, I'm Scott Coates, and joining me from the other side of the world is... Darren Scott. I'm coming to you live from Calgary, Alberta. bit cold today, but hey, what are you going to do? On this special edition of the Sonic Collective, we'll explore what exactly does make a great album. What are the elements? With none other than Canadian music broadcasting heavyweight, Alan Cross. But before we chat with him, let's set the stage. Yeah, so we're both regular listeners of two podcasts, Geeks and Beats and the Ongoing History of New Music, which feature Alan Cross, and we've learned a lot about music from him. And then it came to us. Let's ask Alan if he'll chat about this topic with us. And what do you know? He said yes. So what is the overarching theme here, Darren? What, like, why, why are we doing this? Well, the base level question is, what makes a great album? What are the elements? We also appreciate that in the digital age, we're likely past the days of a complete package of songs being enjoyed as they once were. So we have our opinions, which we'll share, and then we'll get some expert insight from Alan. So, Darren, before we get into it with Alan, what are some of the things, some of the elements that you think come together to form a great album? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, but for me, I've realized a few things I find consistent about great albums. One is, and it might seem obvious, but timing. And I mean the space and time of where we are at in the world and what the date is and what's going on. Many times, but not always, an album hits the right sound, the right tone, and plugs into the zeitgeist or you know, the culture of the time it releases. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of the peace movement, uh, peace movement of the 60s, early 70s comes to mind for amazing musicians that caught the attention of the period. Uh, Canadians like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell were right in there and fit this to fit that description. Right, right. I also think uh-huh. uh, uh, CCR's uh, Cosmos Factory and Pendulum, which were very oh. anti-Vietnam War at the time, but I mean they really, yeah. uh, you know, kind of hit that zeitgeist, zeitgeist at the time. You know, for for more modern examples, I think at NWA Straight Outta Compton or Amy Winehouse's uh, Back to Black. Um, yeah. So speaking of Amy Winehouse, that brings me to my next element. Uh, I think is they define a sound all their own. Uh, though this speaks to the artist in general, a great album is usually one that sounds unique and different from anything previously released. Though Winehouse's vocal style is reminiscent of some of the great soul and jazz artists of the past, she really did make that sound all her own again and sang about immense pain that ca- kind of captured your attention. You know, great albums start trends in sound. They, they lead, not follow. I think that's pretty basic. And, okay. you know, the lastly, Good before one. I kick it over to you, I'd say that what makes a great album, you know, is the concept, the experience, or the brand of it uh, that it creates. Pink Floyd didn't release a collection of disparate songs. They released the Dark Side of the Moon experience. You know, great albums right. tell a story or offer an experience, you know, throughout it. I think that uh, the Kendrick Lamar trilogy of albums, To Pimp, to Pimp a Butterfly, Good Kid, Mad, City and Dam uh, and how he told his life story you know that that's something modern that I think does a good job of branding and really engaging the listener uh, you know they invite you to listen and dig for more meaning so uh, yeah what about you Scott what do you think of the elements 
You went a bit deeper than me. Um, you know, one of them that I'm always mentioning is length. And I've found when we've, you know, looked at albums with the Sonic Collective that the great ones tend to be about 32 minutes to like 48 at the at the longest. So a great album to me leaves you wanting a wee bit more at the end, right? It should be over while you're still loving it. You're digging it. You haven't gotten irritated or tired of it at all. And then you're like, oh, it's over. So that's one. Um, artwork. I mean, an album is that big 12-inch thing, right? Great cover, great concept art, liner notes, even better if you can open it up, provides a medium for people to learn about the music. I mean, this really only happened with LPs as, you know, then we had cassettes and you were like folding out the accordion liner notes, but weren't quite as good. CDs had the little booklet, but like nothing is the same as the artwork on an LP, right? And then the last one, for me is order of songs, you know, um, they should be listened to in order. They're meant to flow in that particular way. Um, one album I think of is like wildflowers by Tom Petty, like, man, that album is meant to be listened to that way. So there can be some standout singles. There can be songs that you would put on just a playlist, but you don't get the same experience because you need to listen into the certain order of the songs. Thanks, Scott. Those are some really good points. Uh, You know, there's a lot of different elements that make up a lot of different songs, but here we are, just two guys that are trying to figure it out. Why not turn to an expert? So that's what we did. We were very lucky to reach out to Alan Cross, and he agreed to talk to us. So uh, how about you uh, introduce him, Scott, and let's get Alan on board with us here. Alan Cross is an internationally known broadcaster, interviewer, writer, consultant, blogger, and speaker. He's been in the business for nearly 40 years and has pretty much done it all in music. He's consulted for Spotify, created playlists for professional sports teams, and is very well known for his long-running show, The Ongoing History of New Music. He joins us from Toronto. Hi there, Alan. Thanks so much for uh, giving us your time. Well, it gives me a chance to sort of get out of my little bubble here in the time of coronavirus. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Let's dive in, Alan. What are some of your earliest personal memories of great albums? Well, the first album I ever bought with my own money was Elton John's Greatest Hits Volume 1. I paid $4.99 for it at a Mm. general store in the small town in Manitoba where I grew up. My mother was absolutely furious with me that I would spend that much money on something as frivolous as a record. But I had to tell her and remind her that I had actually earned this money with my paper route. I could do whatever I wanted with it. So that was, uh, I mean, you start with a greatest hits record, which is, <laughs> you know, obviously going to be a pretty good album. Um, but then I just kind of expanded from, from there uh, to albums that, I mean, this was back in the day when you would go through a record store and often buy records based on the covers. You had no idea what was on the inside, but they looked interesting. Mm. So you would buy them that way. And sometimes you'd get burned, uh, but many times you would realize that you had found something that was not on the radio or something that your friends did not have, and it would be pretty darn cool. All right, so Elton John's Greatest Hits. Now, we're getting a little deep here, but how does a great album make you feel, Alan? Well, you know, a great album means so many different things to so many different people. Um, I think the greatest album uh, ever made, as far as a rock album is concerned, is the Who's Who's Next from 1971. Okay. And there's no there's no filler on that record. Now, it did come as the result of a failed project called Lifehouse, which was supposed to be another Tommy, another Quadrophenia. 
uh, it did not work out that way. So Pete Townsend abandoned everything, took the strongest songs from that project, and turned it into the Who's Next album. And again, you know, there's not a bad track on that record. Um, a lot of Led Zeppelin albums are that way, especially the fourth album, because mm -hmm. I don't think that there's a single song on the fourth Led Zeppelin album that has not been on rock radio since it was released in 1971. Um, there is, uh, there are bands that go through what we call their imperial phase, which is that time when they can't seem to do anything wrong. Everything is, they're in a groove, they're in the zone, and everything is just going well. Uh, and U2 was in that zone from, well, certainly from the Joshua Tree through to Atung Baby. Uh, but you could also make uh, an argument for the Unforgettable Fire being part of that. Um, people will argue, U2 fans will argue, which is the better album, Joshua Tree or Atung Baby. And their bottom line is they're both great albums because, again, the band is, is firing on all cylinders. And there isn't a bad song on on either of those albums. Okay. Yeah, I totally agree. It's funny, we're throwing around the word album a lot. You know, do we still call it that? What do we call an album now? Do we still refer to it as an album? <laughs> well, we still call them albums because we've been that has been the currency of the music industry since at least 1965. Before then, rock and roll was all about singles. But when you have the Beatles come along, you have Bob Dylan come along and a few others, uh, the whole idea of the album becomes much more important and that's where we by the time we get to 67 68 it's all about albums so uh, it's a collection of songs put together by an artist in a certain sequence that is designed to evoke a series of moods over the course of anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes or longer if you have a double album and um, these songs are meant to be listened in that order and they are meant to take you on sort of a, a sonic audio journey through what the artist had in mind over that period of time. Uh, today, though, we're living in what's called the song economy, which means that the only thing that really matters in terms of streaming playlists are individual songs. So the concept of the album is breaking down. People are still issuing albums because there's so much momentum for that kind of uh, releasing of material uh, and so much of the music industry is based on albums you know everything from award shows to uh, marketing and dis distribution cycles and selling stuff in stores and online it's still very much you know geared to the album but artists are getting away from that now realizing that albums don't sell and if when it comes to streaming you know why bother recording 15 songs for an album if the only songs that are going to get any attention are the singles so we, we're seeing artists do a couple of things. First of all, they're, they're drip, drip, dripping out singles that may be put together as a, like an album in the, in, the, in the future, which uh, is basically what they used to do before 1965. Uh, or they're putting out EPs, which have three, four, five, six songs on it. And instead of releasing one album every two years, they're releasing an EP every six months. So this, this whole idea of the traditional album is definitely falling apart. Now, there's going to be all kinds of um, diehards and purists who demand that music be released that way. But, uh, you know, there's so much going on. I think, you know, for example, with COVID-19 and the whole coronavirus situation, the music industry is, is having a real come-to-Jesus moment about, you know, how they're going to go 
how they're going to survive mm-hmm. going forward. So I, I don't really know what this means. Well, Alan, you've touched on a number of elements of a gray down, but I'm wondering if you can share a few more with us. So what are the elements that you think that make a great album beyond the ones you just kind of mentioned? Well, let's take the Joshua Tree as an example. You have to have a grand, grand opening. And with the Joshua Tree, I don't think Bono starts singing for, I think it's a minute and 40 seconds with uh, Where the Streets Have No Name. You have this huge cinematic opening that Mm -hmm. somehow sets the mood and, and sucks you in and then by the time we get to the vocals, you know, you are you are ready to go on this this musical journey with the, with the artist. Right. And then you have to go into you know you have to albums are sequenced very carefully, so you have highs and lows in terms of t- intensity and emotion and tempo, and um, you you have to make sure that you don't exhaust your listener in the first couple of songs. You got to give them a break after uh, one or one or two or two or three songs. So they okay. can sort of catch their breath. Um, and then you have to find perfect songs to end the side because in the old days of albums, of vinyl mm-hmm. albums, you have to get up and turn the record over. So you want to not only conclude that side, but you also mm-hmm. have to make side one, the last song on side one, an invitation to get up, go across the room, turn it over, and start listening to side yeah. two. Okay. So, uh, and then side two has to start with a bang because the idea is to keep you engaged for another 22 minutes okay actually i had a question a little later but i'll jump to it is how do you think cds change the art of the album and i ask this because i remember having uh, full moon fever by tom petty and partway through the cd he made an announcement that for those listening on an album you can now get up and change it and flip it over for those listening on cd just wait a moment like how do you think cds then change that sort of layout of the albums you've just described well, a couple of things. First of all, it was great not being able to have to get up across and uh, get up and go across the room halfway through a record. That that was kind of cool. Um, the other thing, though, was a couple of things. Um, the packaging for the CD was smaller. Yes, you did get a booklet, but it wasn't quite the same as holding that twelve inch by twelve inch square in your hands, uh, looking at the cover, looking at the back cover opening it up if it was a gatefold, looking at the liner notes and the sleeve notes, that sort of thing. There was something a lot more satisfying of having something that large in your hands. Now, CD booklets could be more detailed than whatever you could get on uh, an album, but at the same time, it felt it was smaller. Now, we didn't really care at the time when we made the transition from vinyl to CDs back in the 80s and early 90s because the quality of vinyl was was terrible. It was all recycled vinyl. The vinyl was really thin. It was easily scratched. There was a lot of surface noise, that kind of thing. We could not wait to get rid of vinyl because the quality was so bad. Um, and we were told that the future was digital. You know, we were so in the thrall of, of new technology and futurism that, you know, digital was good, analog was bad. We don't need uh, those old records because now we have perfect sound forever with our compact discs. Um, so there was that. The other thing that's bothered me about the CD was you had a remote. And on that remote was a skip button. <laughs> so rather than with right. the vinyl, you would just listen through a song that you maybe didn't like very much because you knew that another song was coming right after it. You didn't want to get up off the couch. 
with the CD player and the remote, you can just go, boop, skip, and you're, you're past that song. And I'll give you a great example. Uh, Led Zeppelin IV, another great album. So it starts off with Black Dog, great record, great song. Then it goes into Rock and Roll, again, fantastic. And you know you, you know that coming up later in the record, on that side is Stairway to Heaven. But in between Rock and Roll and Stairway to Heaven is this weird mandolin song called Battle of Evermore. Mm. And I remember when I first got the record thinking, what a stupid song. I hate this. Uh, what's it all about? I want to rock. Mm. Um, so I would put up with Battle of Evermore between Rock and Roll and Stairway to Heaven. But then a weird thing happened. After being exposed to it unintentionally, or at least against my will, many, many times, I began to appreciate it. And I thought, oh, this is actually a pretty great song. And the singer's name is Sandy Denny, and she's with a band called Fairport Convention. And, you know, she's singing about things that, who's J.R.R. Tolkien? You know, that kind of thing. So unintentional or unexpected or unwanted exposure to a song because I didn't want to get up and move across the room actually ended up being good for me because I gained a new appreciation for so many things uh, that that song led to rather than just skip past it and, and never ever give it a chance. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I find that too as you get older too, you appreciate it. And Led Zeppelin was definitely in that. Uh, realm for me uh, you know it's funny we're talking about all these albums that are great because they have a lot of great songs on them but does a great album have to be listened to from start to finish or can it do you think it can be a, a collection of just uh, songs uh I, that's a really good question i i, I don't know I, it has to be a collection of really great yeah. songs uh that somehow you know suck you in and take you through um and that's going to be different for everybody uh, i'll go back to when I was in high school. there I have a, a guilty pleasure, if you want to call it that, uh, about a, with a British glam band called The Sweet. They did mm. Ballroom Blitz and Fox mm. in the Run. But they had a very, very deep catalog of what I thought were really cool poppy rock songs. And in 1975, they released a record called Desolation Boulevard. And I listened to that album Side one and side two for every single paper that I had to write in high school and university. There was not a project that I worked on in my, in my bedroom, uh, either writing or typing or researching, where I did not have that album on at least once. And that's for me, is, is a great album. <laughs> I don't know of anybody else on the planet that believes that uh, Desolation <laughs> Boulevard is, is a fantastic record, but it's it somehow spoke to me in terms of, of mostly timbre and tone and, and, and uh, sonic intensity that uh, it just became, you know, one of those records that I'll go back to again and again and again, even now. Cool. Well, you touched on this at the, the beginning of our conversation, and I had a flash um, the other day thinking of uh, Almost Famous, the Cameron Crowe movie, and at the beginning where William discovers records that his sister has left for him, he pulls them out from under the bed, and I believe it's the Who's Sparks that is playing, and while he's listening to it, he's actually running his hands over album covers, like trying to get something out of them by touch. So I'm wondering, what do you think is the role that the album art and the covers played with making a great album? Well, up until music videos came along, that was the only visuals that we had. 
Uh-huh. We, you know, would look at an album cover like, let's say, Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here and wonder what's going on because we have two guys in suits standing in a movie, uh, obviously a movie lot, and one of them's on fire and doesn't seem to mind it. You know, what, what does that mean? And, you know, that, that's all you have to do is sit and stare at that picture as you let the record play. And that, that again, you know, sucked you into what was going on. Uh, some album covers were really rudimentary. They didn't spend any time, you know, trying to, you know, make them into any kind of great art. But, you know, guys like uh, Strom Thurgensen and Hypnosis and some of the other great album cover art studios would... Um, uh, again, would would add a visual element to the record, and also we talked about it earlier, suck you into buying it without actually having heard what was on the record. Now, again, right. in, in North American record stores, we didn't have listening booths, so you couldn't go and listen to a record before you bought it. You had to actually purchase it on faith. I remember seeing uh, Joy Division, Unknown Pleasures, <laughs> and like what I mean. What what's this all about? I mean, it's got these squiggles on the front. There's no words or text anywhere else. Uh, it's this you know dark black color. Man, this looks mysterious and evil and weird and strange and exotic and mystical. Uh, okay, I'll buy it. Um, so that was a that was a victory. I do remember buying an album from a group called Stars S T R Z. Okay, and it was called Attention Shoppers. <laughs> So I thought, oh, okay, I will buy this record because of the cover. Yeah. Terrible album. <laughs> Just a terrible, terrible record. Right. But that was part of the fun of, of, of buying records and part of the frustration, too, of buying records. Now, okay. you know, with a couple of pokes at our phone, we can listen to any song, any time from in, in the whole of human history. Uh, and it, it, it uh, you know, I'm Grandpa Simpson here, but it's, it kind of lost its <laughs> magic in some way. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay, so I'm a big vinyl guy myself, and I know you are. Do you think the resurgence of vinyl again could bring back the art form of the album? Well, again, there's, gonna, there's always going to be purists and the hardcore people. Um, up until this virus hit, uh, album sales were, you know, vinyl album sales were on an upward trajectory since 2008. So people were getting into this, the, the, they were getting into the, the glories of analog sound. Um, I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, it sounds better. Number two, there's something about having a personally curated collection of music that is physical and something that you can go back to and study and analyze and enjoy over and over again without having to do anything else. It's always there for you. Uh, And another point is, never discount this, is that you can point to your record collection and Mm. tell your friends, see how much I love music. Uh I have devoted... You know, nine meters of shelf space that I could easily carry around in my phone. But I love music so much that I am giving up my personal space to house it, to care for it, to keep it, to archive it. Um, and and look how much I, I love music so much that I am willing to use this inconvenient format that is not portable, that is the feature that you can't skip, that's not searchable. I'm going to do it all this old-fashioned way because that's how much I love music more than you do. Okay, so it's an ego-driven thing. All right. Well, Darren, Oh, and uh, I, uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's almost exclusively a guy thing. 
Yeah. Uh, although I was at a, a record show, I guess last year, and there's you know all these, these guys going through all the crates, and I find myself standing next to a woman, and I look at her and I go, "You're a girl." And she goes, "Yeah, I feel <laughs> I feel awfully alone here." Well, thinking about the elements that we've kind of covered of a great album, Darren and I were having some trouble of thinking of recent great albums. Can you think of an example or two of a fairly recent great album, the whole package? Hmm. Arcade Fire of the Suburbs. Okay. Yeah, actually. Uh, okay. There haven't been, I mean, we're seeing a decline in the number of great albums. I mean, you know, um, I guess you would. Green Day, American Idiots would be another mm-hmm. one. Yeah, uh, it's hard. And again, yeah. that's because uh, we can blame Steve Jobs for this. Mm. So in the early two thousands, the music industry has no idea how to react to file sharing, and because of various uh, uh, anti-competitive rules, they can't get together and create their own music store. So there were two. There was one called MusicNet, and no, one called Play Music, and then one called MusicNet, and they were. It's just a terrible, terrible arrangement for uh, digital storefronts. So Steve Jobs comes along and says, look, I will create this thing called iTunes. You are going to deconstruct all your albums and make them available as individual songs for 99 cents. And I will handle all the distribution and payment and everything else uh, for you. You have no choice, and the record labels agree that they did not have any choice. So, beginning with the deb- debut of the iTunes Music Store, we became used to. Well, actually, no, it goes back a little bit further than that. When in the in the late '90s, the record industry decided that if you wanted to have that one song from that band from that album, well, then you had to buy the whole album mm-hmm. because what they ended up doing was 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 they they ended the sale of CD singles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, you know, if you want that one song, you have to buy the whole CD for $17 or, or whatever it was. And it didn't matter if there was one song and, and 12 pieces of crap, it was $17 or nothing. That was part of the reason why Napster and file sharing took off, because you could buy just the songs you wanted. Uh, well, not buy them. You could get the songs you wanted uh, without having to deal with all the other crap. And in the late 90s, there was a lot of one-hit wonders, a lot of them. So we became used to this Chinese menu of song selection as a result of Napster and other file sharing programs. iTunes only exacerbated that. And once we started deconstructing albums into individual songs uh, all across the board, there was no going back. So that was that was the first nail in the coffin for this concept of the album, this this official deconstruction by iTunes and a willing music industry. There's a lot of albums out there that many people, I guess, or the masses might consider a great album, but you would argue that maybe it's not such a great album. Yeah, very, very, very personal. Um, okay, the funeral album from Arcade Fire. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I just don't. I mean, I when I started hearing people rave and rave and rave and rave about it, and and I I, I bought it and put it on, and I'm like, okay, this is all right. Um, I don't know if it's great, but it's all right. Uh, I'll give. Oh boy, here we go. I think that there are some 
There are a couple of really good songs on Born to Run. <laughs> yeah. Not the whole album. Oh, man. Yeah. Just a couple of songs. We make sure this doesn't get played in the States around New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. You know, I, but the, again, you know, you can't fight brain chemistry. If a song or an artist's work uh, triggers that shot of dopamine from your brain, it's it's just it's all chemical. It's it's not about your not necessarily about your taste. It's about what gets you off, <laughs> and and there are a lot of artists that you know people love 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 that just don't result in a dopamine hit for me. And we're all the same. I, again, we go back to my album Desolation Boulevard. I'm guaranteeing that if I sat you guys down in front of my stereo and played it for you, you'd go yeah. <laughs> but me, I'm going yeah, wow. And then okay. we could, I'm sure it would work. Well, let me turn it around. What do you think are great albums? Or what do you think are overrated albums? Which is basically what we're talking about. Anything by Linkin Park. <laughs> Never understood. Okay, I, fair, fair I like, enough. Linkin Park. I like hard rock. I like rap. But something about them, just nothing about it speaks to me at all. Okay, uh, we can actually expand that to the entire new metal genre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> new metal was an extremely polarizing form of music in the late 90s. But, you know, in Toronto, there was a double bill of Limp Biscuit and Corn. They attracted 65,000 people wow. to the Skydome. Wow. So somebody was into it. Yeah. I just, I, I, and I, I would look at this and go, man, this is nothing but frat boy testosterone on overdrive. It just does not do it for me. I'm not that angry. Mm. I'm not that hateful. Um, yeah. So I, I okay. I'll, I'll, you know, Lincoln Park was, was uh, a much more pop-oriented, melodic version of, of new metal. Uh, but you know, that first album sold 10 million copies. I think, yeah. they sold a, I think they sold 100 million records over the course of their career. Yeah, see, but it's, it's fine. You know, yeah. If, yeah. You know here's, here's been my, it took me a very long time to get to this point. But I have determined that the best way to go through life is respect all music, listen to what you want. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's it. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining us, Alan, and sharing your insight and wisdom. Uh, you touched on some really great points. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, stay home, stay safe, wash your hands. Well, that was really, really interesting, Darren. So I guess I keep asking myself, and I don't want it to be true, but do you think the era of the great album is over? Is that just dead behind us, done? Uh, I think it's definitely going to decline, but I, I don't think it's done. I think there will always be an appreciation uh, of, a, of a full package. And, you know, even with the resurgence of vinyl, I don't think that's going to go anywhere. I think there's always a certain percentage of the uh, music fan population that will like albums, but it's definitely getting mm -hmm. harder. You know, like I just saw The weekend went over a billion uh, streams uh, of something of uh, I Can't Feel My mm -hmm. Face, whatever that song is. Actually, that's very topical right now but oh, okay. um yeah yeah That's i don't know what about you what do you think <laughs> i think it is i think the fact also i mean there'll be the odd album but i also think uh, you and i you're 50 and i'm in my late 40s that once people 
uh, the people around no longer grew up with albums, they won't even expect them, right? And we asked Alan, like, what was the last great album? I mean, he mentioned Arcade Fire and Green Day. Those are both, you know, a decade or more yeah. old, right? They're, they're, they're old albums. So, yeah, unfortunately, it's a thing I just don't want to be true, but I, I think it is kind of over. So to wind this thing up, you and I kind of picked a list of some albums that we think are, you know, you have to listen to it as a package and some great albums that work great as a package, but we also think you can kind of just pick singles out. So why don't you share one of your uh, picks for kind of a great album, Darren? It's a great album. Uh, I just mentioned to you earlier was, I just got it in vinyl. I was pretty stoked. Queens of the Stone Age, Songs for the Deaf. I think that, you know, Josh Homey created a masterpiece of alt rock. Uh, It was a real fun concept album. They made it sound like there was a radio station kind of in between each song. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was really entertaining. Um, I like that. Uh, Queen of the Stone Age always have a very distinct sound, too, you know. Uh, Thanks mostly in part to the unique guitar tuning that Homey uses. And, uh, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. just as rocking tunes are unrelenting. Um, Yeah, I just think that's a fantastic album. What about you? Yeah, that is a good one. And it's it's meant to be listened to start to finish because it's supposed to be on a journey through the desert, I believe, driving from L.A. Uh, to Nevada. Right. Yeah. That's the idea. So that is a great album. One that I'll throw out there as a as a great package. Uh, I mean, this is almost too obvious to put in there, but Dark Side of the Moon, Pink mm-hmm. Floyd. Right. Like this is one of the ultimate albums in the true sense of the word from the cover art, you know, the mesmerizing prism and that and the songs. Yeah. Yeah, they take you on almost like a spiritual type journey. And I'll say there's only one song I listen to on its own, and that's Us and Them. I'll just sometimes listen to that. But something I'm always talking about on the Sonic Collective is the time, 43 minutes long, like tight, tight package, has all the elements. And that's one I think you got to listen to start to finish. How about another one from you, man? Yeah, um, you know, I think another classic one, and even though Alan mentioned that the whole new metal was dead, I think the one of the people that uh, bands that started it was Rage Against the Machine. I think their self-titled debut album just really changed it. It's like, well, wait, you can combine rap and kind of harder rock? How is that possible? And I think, again, having Tom Morello Mm. on guitar, um, you know, I I play that album and I say to people, what instruments do you hear? And they'll pick out all these synthesizers and samples. And I'm like, nope, it's all guitar. So I think that album just, you know, blows Mm. my mind because the songs are so good and Tom Morello is so good. It's just, it's amazing. It's an incredible album, great start to finish, but that one kind of leads into what I'm going to talk about is that I think you can easily listen to any of those songs on their own too. Oh yeah. Like they work well as singles and as an album. And I think an album that maybe does that the very best for me is both a great package, but also any song can be listened to on on its own is Purple Rain by Prince. Mm -hmm. Like the arrangement of the tracks takes you through the full range of tempo, topic, emotional mood. I mean, it starts with Let's Go Crazy, like boom, out of the gates. And then you get into it a bit and there's like Darling Nikki, which kind of brings it down a bit. Then when Doves Cry, and then it ends with Purple Rain. It's, I mean, it's the order of the songs are incredible, but then again, you can listen to any of those tunes on a playlist and it's great just on its own and great artwork too like it's so flamboyant mm-hmm. so I think that's another great album okay let's have another one from you man uh, yeah I'll flip it because I, I really like my alt rock and punk but I also I've always liked my soul hip hop and I one of my favorites growing up was a tribe called, tribe called Quest mm-hmm. People's Instinctive Travels and the Path of Rhythm you know I, 
I, you know, I first heard this album. It sounded different than anything else out there at the time. Uh, mm. You know, the producer and beat creator Ali Shaheed Muhammad and frontman Q-Tip, they had this deep love of jazz. So mm. instead, uh, everybody's out digging, looking for the perfect samples. And it, they, they weren't out necessarily just digging from some early funk albums. They started to really dive into jazz, uh, classic albums of jazz, and start sampling that. And just really change the sound to this smoother, more, I guess, even more consumable and consumer-friendly mm. um, it's just so smooth. Q-Tip's voice and uh, Fife Dog, amazing. You know, and this was kind of like a resurgence of the New York East Coast rap. Uh, you know, just an amazing album. Okay, I'll do one more. Uh, the Black Crows, The Southern Harmony, and Musical Companion. This is one that I really only put on when I can listen to the whole thing. Because, I mean, there's a couple standout singles, Hotel Illness and Sting Me, which, yeah, they're on a playlist. But to me, this one you got to listen to all the way through. Every song has its own vibe, and, and it really takes you through that emotional journey along the way. So that's one that I love. It comes in a little bit longer than what I think makes a great album at 51 minutes, but it's a solid one. So, Darren, um, kind of before we finish, I'm, I'm interested in what you think are some of the great album covers. I mean, we talked about that with Alan, and I think it is such an important part of a great album so what are a few that stand out to you as great covers? yeah and I you know there's so many but I'm really approaching this I guess from a vinyl collector standpoint which I am um, I love it right I, I think yeah, about yeah and, and I just love that I you know I compare it to archaeology when I get some of these albums and open it up one I got recently and I actually had no idea but it was so fun was Isaac Hayes Black Moses this album cover it's him and he's dressed <laughs> like kind of looks like a Black Moses I guess but the album it folds down down and out and it forms this giant cross uh it looks like its arms fold in or holding uh it, it's just so it's so fun wow. it's just such a fun album coming. there's just so much to explore and read and do it, it's it's excellent what about you what's one yeah you like um well there's a few i, I mean one i really like is whipped cream and other delights from herb albert and the tijuana brass it, it, it's just got a beautiful woman covered in whipped yeah. cream right like you see that and you can't help looking at it for quite a while. And no matter how many times you've seen it, you'll keep looking like you're going to catch like some nip or something ah. in there. I just think it's tantalizing. It draws you in. Like, I'm not even sure what it has to do with any of the songs on that album, but it, but it's a great one. Um, one more I'll throw in there. I mean, London Calling from The Clash. I like it. It's just a photo, you know, of uh, a guitar being smashed on the stage. But to me, that really speaks to that album. How about you? Yeah, you know, I'll finish with a couple here. One, and it's kind of outside what I usually listen to, but I, I got this album not long ago, just kind of found it in a group that was given to me, but it was Loretta Lynn, Don't Come Home a Drinking with a Lovin' on Your Mind, which sounds hilarious. <laughs> but really, yeah. this came out in 1965, and she's basically saying to, to men, don't come home drunk and try and, you know, basically hit on or assault or harass women and it mm. was really uh, I guess an early feminist album cover that was really pushing the limits of society at that time and uh, the more I kind of I listened to it and read about it I thought that was really amazing and then just you know one one for the road Rage Against mm. the Machine self-titled I mean it was just yeah. shocking you, you see the uh, and sorry is it Cambodian monk or no no I no, believe uh, it's Vietnamese um, Vietnamese monk, right, that had uh, set himself on fire. And, uh, man, it's just like you look at that cover, you're like, damn. Like that, yeah. that's a, an attention getter. It's crazy. And I'll just throw in two really broad ones. But I think almost every album cover from Zeppelin or the Stones are really mm -hmm. good. Like they're weird. 
that you've got to really study them like all those bands both those bands their album covers are really great so wow this was this was a lot of fun you know we've never done uh, an episode about a topic right we're always just reviewing albums and kind of talking about a particular album um I, I it was a lot of fun i found this a lot of fun to kind of pick a specific music topic and uh i think we yeah, should do me one too. again me too i think it's time we expand the sonic collective it was a great time cool well thanks everyone for listening and uh thanks darren for joining us uh, why don't you take us out of this yeah thing? thanks so uh for myself darren scott in calgary alberta scott coates who is way over in bangkok thailand mm. uh we're all staying safe and we want to put up obviously a big thank you to alan cross who came from uh, mississauga ontario yeah thanks, huge alan. thanks alan thanks for joining us today all right for more great music information reviews and now expanding into interviews join us at thesonicollective.com and this is Darren and Scott signing out for now. <laughs>